I think it's going to stay. Good job, Riley. There's this metaphor in the Bible that talks about the church being the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. So we are the bride of Christ. And might I say you're looking beautiful this morning. Bride? Perfect. So two weeks ago, we looked at uh, what the church what meant to gather around Jesus. Last week, we looked at what it meant for the church to be the family of Christ. And today, we're looking at what it means for the church to be the bride of Christ. As we explore what it means to, for us to be a combined church, because we merged three months ago, but also for those who are new amongst us to explore whether membership in our church is something they'd like to do. So... Cast your minds back to the turn of the century. It was 1999 going into 2000. And something very, very significant happened that night. Anyone know what it was? Lyndall and I got engaged. Pop the question. New Year's Eve of Y2K. When you remember the rumours, the world was literally going to stop and die overnight. And nothing happened. We're all here. It's great. Nothing happened. But I thought I'd make the most of this opportunity at a New Year's Eve party to propose. And I won't go into the details because there was a little bit of a story around it. But we might save that for another illustration and another day. So you'll need to keep coming back. But when, when I proposed, there was, there was no legal um, exchange. There was no signing of paperwork. There was no um, witnesses that were there in a formal sense. There was a lot of people that were gathered around, but no legal witnesses. Lyndall's father did not even give me a dowry. Yeah, I know. I'm outraged. Still, still to this day, 21 years later. If we'd have broken off our engagement in the next year that we were engaged, there would have been no ramifications other than perhaps a little bit of social shame. But when the Bible talks about being engaged, it was a different ballgame than it is in our day and age. When the church talks about the bride of Christ, it delves into this understanding that a bride will be married one day. And if we go to the book of Revelation, if you go to Revelation 19, here it is. It says, let us rejoice. It's talking about this wedding day and be glad. Let us praise his greatness. That's God's. For the time has come for the wedding of the lamb, which is Jesus, and his bride that's been prepared, that has prepared herself for it. That's the church. She, the church, has been given clean, shining linen to wear. And linen is the good deeds of God's people. This is about the grand day of that wedding where we, the church, are finally united with Christ. We are inseparably joined for eternity. What a wonderful future awaits us. So how long till that happens? Shall I tell you? I don't have a clue. No one has a clue. No one has a clue. Every generation since Christ has been convinced that they are the generation. So I'm turning the tide. I don't think it's going to happen in my time. When the world finishes and God steps back in and reunites Christ with the church in a marriage ceremony that they will be bonded together forever. We are currently and have been for just under 2,000 years in what's called a season of betrothal. That is a lovely way of saying engagement, isn't it? We should bring that word back. 
betrothal. Betrothal was the first part of a two-part process of Jewish marriage. In Hebrew, it's called Kedushin. Do I have a go at that? It's fun to say. One, two, three. Kedushin. Kedushin is a Hebrew word that actually directly means sanctification. Sanctification is to be made holy by God. So betrothal means uh, engagement to us, but back then they used the word kedushin to talk about betrothal, and kedushin meant sanctification, the process of being made holy. It's very different from our cultural understanding of engagement, isn't it? I mean, it consists of a ring, a question, and a photographer with a drone nowadays, right? That's, that's, you need that to get engaged these days. But kedushin, betrothal in the biblical times, was far more binding than our engagement understanding. You see, most marriages were arranged. They're arranged marriages. If we, anyone here, just for interest's sake, has been, um, been a part of an arranged marriage? Yeah? I'm gonna, John, Miriam, John put up his hand. Yeah, that's right. Sort that one out later on. Can we all watch? <laughs> So, 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 so most marriages back in biblical times, they were arranged. And this happened where the father of the groom, so the father of the man, would choose the most suitable bride for his son. The predominant question being, how will my kingdom be increased as a result of their union? That's what the father-to-be would be. We're well, not the father-to-be, the father of the, um, the groom. Now, we are the bride of Christ, Chosen by God the Father, the Father of Jesus Christ, our groom. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about First Peter. We are the chosen by God and valuable. We are the bride of Christ, chosen by God, the Father of the Son he wants to have an arranged marriage with. Because God is asking the single question how will my kingdom be increased as a result of their union? As a result of Jesus and the people, the church coming together, how will my kingdom be increased? The church's single focus is to increase the kingdom of God in the world. That's what we're here for. That's why we worship, because worshiping extends the kingdom of God. It's why we pray. It's why we care for each other. It's why we look out for the poor. It's why we do all of that to increase the kingdom of God in this world, to fulfill our marriage responsibilities to God. But the bride-to-be in those days, they had the complete option to say no. No strings attached, no retribution. If the bride didn't want the groom, the bride could say no, and that was fine. Which is what Jesus is talking about. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, whoever chooses in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes, it is a choice. It is a choice the church gets and every person in the church gets to say, I'd like to be part of the betrothal. And being part of the betrothal means being part of the church and being a Christian. The Bible does not understand the two separate. So you are either a Christian and part of the church, or you're not. Or you've chosen to step aside from the marriage ceremony and things that are happening. Step aside from God's love and God's kingdom and let that go past. 
Your choice to follow Jesus, my choice to follow Jesus, is the same choice as belonging to the church. We try and separate it, but in God's eyes, it cannot be separated. Now, being betrothed was a legal agreement that you entered into. There were papers that were signed in front of witnesses. It could only be dissolved by death or divorce. And if a bride or the groom began a relationship whilst they were betrothed to somebody else, that was considered adultery and punishable by death. Who prefers our engagement? is a little bit less intense, right? The way we think about engagement. From the first moment of betrothal, they were eternally joined together. And then the next, however long it took to be betrothed, would eventuate in a marriage service. Now, once, once the betrothal commenced, once it started, so once you were engaged, gifts were exchanged. And the gifts were exchanged between the two families. And they weren't given to sort of like as a compensation. It wasn't like, well, I'm taking your daughter, here's some cattle. It wasn't like that. And it, and it wasn't like... We're so thankful you're taking our daughter. Here's a donkey. It wasn't like that at all. The giving and receiving of gifts between two families was about balancing the relationship. It was about both saying we are invested in this union that's taking place. And here's our show of our investment. Now think about these words from Jesus. Luke 9, 23. Jesus said to them all, the disciples who were there, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross follow daily and follow me. That's actually marriage language. Not our marriage language, but ancient marriage language. It's a reference to the betrothal God was inviting the church to have. Jesus is saying, my gift to this is I will lay down my life for you. Will you do the same? Will you take up that life on a daily Basis. Will you invest yourself as I am fully investing myself into this? It's beautiful, isn't it? The imagery that God has for us and our relationship with him. As God invites us, the church, into a relationship with Christ, he is asking us to lay down everything at the feet of Jesus and trust that the bridegroom, Jesus, is enough. We're being asked to trust that Jesus is enough and lay everything else down. I say to couples when I marry them, your life is no longer your own. And usually what happens is the bride goes and the groom goes, like I picked the wrong day to come to the session. I say, you now, before you get married, you can do what you like. There are consequences in that. But when you get married under God, your life now belongs to that other person and their life now belongs to you. You give your lives to each other. That is the greatest wedding gift you can give. It's the only way a healthy marriage can work. And as part of the covenant that we all make with Jesus, we deny our life in pursuit of him because Jesus denied his life in pursuit of us and our reconciliation with God. Now, arranged marriage in our day, let's just do an interesting survey. 
If you love the idea of arranged marriage, if it applied to you, just pop up your hand now. We, we, we don't like it, right? Because it's not, it's not cultural. Kate's keen, but it'd take, a lot of, take a lot of the problem out of dating, wouldn't it? Just like, just, just like lay it out before me, easy. The reason we don't like it is because, well, what if we get someone we don't want? What if we get someone we don't like? What if we get someone we have a, a personality clash with? But in biblical times, they never asked these questions. It never entered their mind to think this way. Arranged marriage was very much the norm. Parents who arranged a marriage had no doubt that love and affection would grow in that marriage as they performed the deeds of marriage. Just like every couple never worried or feared, were they, how can I be paired with a complete stranger? Because they knew under the covenant of God, this marriage, they would grow to know and love them and be able to trust and respect them. Choice about marriage, about um, who we might choose, is a very modern idea. And it's a very Western idea. Knowing this, though, helps us make sense of what Riley read to us before. So keep that in mind. And here's it is. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. This is a cultural command. It's required in every marriage if a marriage is arranged. For the arranged marriage to work, you had to do this. And this wasn't news to anyone who heard it. They would have heard it hundreds of times. Yep. Of course, Paul, how else does marriage work if not by these words? Except Paul is also talking about the church in the same breath. He's knitted together the idea of a man and a woman marrying. He's knitted that together with the idea of the church and Jesus marrying. We too, you see, are in an arranged marriage with Jesus. It was arranged by God the Father for us to be in. And our betrothal to Christ is actually about us getting to know Jesus. The last 2,000 years and whatever time span is in front of us before Jesus comes back is about getting to know our groom. It's about getting to know Jesus, preparing for that final day of marriage when we're all in. God is saying to the church, before the last day, there is still more to discover about Jesus. There is still more for us to know of Jesus. There is still more intimacy for us to have with Jesus than what we've already had. Now the engagement period, the betrothal, the kiddushin, it gave the bride time to prepare for the new role. That's why they had it. To gather the personal belongings of what she wanted to take in the next part of her life to reconfigure relationships that she had with her parents and with her siblings and with her friends because she would now be a married woman and to become better acquainted with her fiancé. Remember that translation, Kudishan? It means sanctification, being made holy by God. In the same way, a bride prepares herself for union with her groom. We, the church, are being prepared by Christ, by God, for our union with Jesus. It's called sanctification. God is in the process of making his church holy. And I'm sure at times he'd like a bit more cooperation than we perhaps give him. 
Remember Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for it, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is what is ahead of us as we move toward our wedding day with Christ. On that wedding day, God wants to say to his son Christ, this is your bride, holy and blameless, a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Wow. Mm. So who's this guy? Who's this guy? Anyone know? Good looking rooster. His name is A.W. Tozer. Now that may or may not ring a bell for some of you. A.W. Tozer was an American pastor at the turn of the century, last century. So moving into the 1900s, he pastored. And this guy, if he preached at any church in our day and age, he would get booted out. He was far more like, I'm going to give it to you what God says rather than I'm going to care for you. And so A.W. Tozer forced to be reckoned with. Prolific author. You read his words, you're like, oh, there's truth in this. And I hate that there's truth in this because it's so challenging. And he said this word about holiness, about the church being holy. He said, holiness, as taught in the scriptures, is not based upon knowledge on our part. Rather, it is based upon the resurrected Christ indwelling in us and changing us into his likeness. It's not how much you know about Jesus. It's about how surrendered you are to Jesus. It's not about how much you read the Bible or do any of that. It's about how much you love Jesus. That's where holiness comes from. You see, radiance grows and stain and wrinkle are washed away. The the blemishes are removed. And holiness shines in direct correlation to how much time we spend with Jesus. It really does. And there's no way around it. I've got a friend that says you can't fake your history with God. It just is what it is. We can't say, but I'm a holy person, a good person. It's like, nope, it all matters on how intimate you are with Jesus right now. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more holiness others will see in you. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more that holiness will shape the world. So that's what's happening to the bride in this betrothal situation. The the bride is preparing herself by coming to know her groom, by being made holy in this process, ready for her wedding day. The groom isn't slouching around, waiting for the day to come. The groom also is in the process of knowing his bride, but the other thing required of the the groom, not the broom, the groom is to grab the broom and prepare the house that they're gonna live in. So that's what the groom had to do, prepare the home where they would live in. And as we covered last week, that home was likely a a room built onto the groom's family home. So if you think about um, the the guys not leaving home, he's staying with mum and dad and saying to the bride, come and be part of this, and I've built a room that is perfect for us to live in. So that's what the the groom is doing during this betrothal period. Do you see the parallels there? The church's wedding date to Jesus is at the end of an unknown point in the future. And until that time, Jesus, our groom, 
is at work redeeming this world in preparation for the next. He's preparing things here for the new heaven and earth that we will have. So in our betrothal, Jesus is at work reconciling this whole world to himself. Because we know when we read Revelation that heaven is actually this new earth. It's a redeemed earth, a restored earth, which is what Jesus is doing. Now he's at work fixing that. Which brings us to the wedding ceremony itself. Who was nervous on their wedding day? Oh, come on, it wasn't just me, was it? Like four of us, great. I thought everyone would be nervous. I was just shaking like a leaf. It's like the girl of my dreams is finally becoming my wife. This is an amazing, amazing day. You're making a forever, forever decision with two words. I will. Like, wow. So I have guys ask me, you want to marry them? They say, they say to me, what if I cry? Like, what if this day is so significant and so emotionally impacting that I cry? And I say, I cried. And they look at me as if, like, you are so tough, Ralph. How could you possibly cry? And I say, let me prepare you. What happens is your eyes start to leak. <laughs> and then your cheeks, they get a little bit wet. And everything gets a bit blurry, but it's okay. You'll live you can get through this because it's normal. When something massive happens, it's a normal reaction. And they always cry. And I always have a little chuckle to myself. Not like outward chuckle, but like inward chuckle. But our wedding ceremonies, as intense as they can be, are nothing on first century ones. And this is a depiction of one. Obviously, they didn't have cameras back then. So on the wedding day, here's what would happen. Wedding day finally arrives after being betrothed for however long that takes. The groom and his friends would leave his parents' home, would go to the bride's home, collect the bride, and take the bride back to mum and dad's place. And they would have an almighty party. There would be feasts and festivities for days. The party was happening. And whilst that party was happening, Parents and friends and family would come and bless the couple, and vows were exchanged. But a covenant of faithfulness was exchanged. And here's where it gets quite uncomfortable for church on a Sunday morning. You ready? This is where the couple would go into the room that the groom has prepared in order to know each other better. Yeah know each other. Do you get my drift? No, because we can't say sex in church. I said, know each other. We're going to say sex a couple of times, so we'll move past that. That word know is the word that the Bible uses for consummating a marriage. The same word know, to know someone in the most deep and intimate and powerful and knowing way you possibly can is the same word that the Old Testament talks about this act of consummation in a, in a wedding. A fully giving of yourselves to another person. The final entwining of your lives and your hearts and your souls and your bodies, never to be undone. That was the gift of sex that God gave to humanity. And it should be the pinnacle, and it was the pinnacle of every marriage service. 
So if we cast our minds back to Genesis 4, in that the word yodah is, is used to capture this moment of Adam and Eve coming together. Yodah, they knew each other. They came together in the deepest understanding and knowing you can have of a person. And as they were getting, so, so that's the, this idea of knowing. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more intense. Marriage ceremony, room, couple in the room getting to know each other. As they are there, what happens to all the guests? They're waiting outside the room. For proof that consummation has happened, and that's when the party erupts, just goes off as proof is delivered, and they cheer because this couple are finally united together in every way forever. We, we struggle with that kind of picture, don't we? It's like, that's so uncomfortable. Because our culture has robbed sex of its holiness and its sacredness and of its celebration. But it's a metaphor, hear me now, metaphor that the Bible uses for our depth of knowing and intimacy that we can have with Jesus. See, in heaven, we have our deepest level of intimacy and knowing with God where we are fully give ourselves to God. It's the final part of the intertwining of our lives and our hearts and our souls and our bodies, never to be undone. This is what awaits us after death if we follow Jesus, if, Jesus, if we know that Jesus is the way. It's incredible. The Hebrew word name given to betrothal is Kiddushan, but the Hebrew name given to marriage is Nisuin, and Nisuin, which I'm sure I've pronounced incorrectly, means elevation. Elevation. It's, it's part of, um, it, it means the, the marriage uh, or the, the betrothal period has been elevated to a new status, a new understanding in our culture. It's part of where our thinking comes from when we think about going up to heaven or God in heaven. When we read Revelation, we have a picture of God in heaven above creation. It's the elevation from the circumstances to an eternity of knowing God. So we are elevated from here to be with God. We are free of all this. We have finally made it. We are married to Christ. And the arranged marriage between the church which is us, and Christ, is the ultimate promise from God that as bad as it gets for you, it won't stay that way if you love Jesus. It's such good news. Just think about it for a sec. As bad as your life can get, if you know Jesus, it will not, it cannot stay that way because of the wedding ceremony that awaits us for the intimacy and knowing we have with Christ, where we are elevated, we are taken out of these circumstances that are terrible and reunited with Jesus. It, is, it, it is, awaits every believer in Jesus Christ. So when you read that the church is the bride of Christ, when you stumble across that, when you hear someone say it, you're also hearing God's heart-wrenching plea to know you. He so desperately wants to know you. And then he wants to make you holy. And he wants to invite you to join him in his redeeming work in this world. So we are betrothed, folks, and it is good news. 
And I offer it to you today as an encouragement that when life is tough, you are betrothed to Christ. And in the end, it will be so much better than whatever it is now. So let's give thanks to God. Let's pray. Lord, in our day and age, it's going to be so weird to stretch our minds around the context of how marriage used to unfold. But we are so thankful. We're so thankful of the plans you have for us, the betrothal you've entered into with us, your deep love and care for us. Lord, we are not worthy. We know we're not worthy. We don't even feel worthy. Worthy to have before us intimacy with you and connection forever. A connection that we can know and experience now, that we can learn and lean into now. Lord, we are not worthy. And so forgive us for our sin. And may it fall away as we step toward you this morning. And as we continue to lean into our relationship with you. May we know you in deeper and more powerful and significant ways. May you again show us the depth and breadth and power of your love. And may your spirit be a work in us, we pray now and forever. Amen. Stand with us as we sing one more song. Very fitting song. Christ.